Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Again, it's nice to start the day in the dark and then suddenly see your faces. It was interesting for me also this morning walking in the dark on the grass and then as the light came actually seeing the blades of grass. So We've been talking a lot about time, and it's also important that when we contemplate time, we also contemplate space. Time and space go together. Um, Some of you might know this just from experiences maybe that you've had when time dissolves. Um, also our sense of space can change radically as well. And this doesn't just happen in um, calm, mystical experiences, but it also happens when um, the storytelling mind is interrupted, even in trauma. Um, This happens when you get shot, or sometimes when someone is stabbed, or when your car is out of control, spinning down the highway. And thinking doesn't stop. There's still thinking. But um, the reference of what's happening to a me stops. Time stops. Some people, you know, talk about being in a car heading towards a guardrail and it being hours. Um, How much can happen in that space? But somebody else who might be in a car behind them sees that happen like, like that. And so our, spense, our sense of time and our sense of space um, seem to be um, constructed by certain mechanisms in the mind. And um, it was interesting last night at dinner um, comparing acid trips with people <laughs> and um, how... There were sort of two perspectives. One is that something happens where your imagination is set free and um, you can start to see how far your imagination can go in creating images and shapes and colors and ideas. And the other perspective was 
um, maybe your imagination is not actually doing that, but maybe it's always like that. And the function of the mind is actually to put that together in a more recognizable pattern. And both, both ways are valid, and I think both perspectives are true. Um, but thinking about time in terms of space helps us remember um, that even on a day like this, we look out the window and it's overcast and cloudy. But if we were on uh, a plane taking off um, from Pearson Airport, uh, within about one minute you'd be through that overcast and everything would be blue. Or last night even, you know, we're in this room covered by a ceiling and then you walk out and there are the stars. And likewise, when you're caught up in um, the kind of smallness that can happen in our own minds where um, we're so focused on um, a particular issue or a conflict, and then we forget about, um, in Japanese it's ku, is the, the sky, the sky mind, that big mind, the part of the mind behind the mind. So I wanted to start with a little poem today that I think will introduce Dogen. Um... This comes from Basho. Uh, some of you uh, have heard more poems by Basho this year, maybe, than anybody. Um, this year I was really taken to reading. I've always loved his poetry, and this year uh, he's mostly known for um, coming up with the haiku form. And um, this year I read his travel journals, and um, um, his travel journals are very interesting because Basho didn't just write uh, poems. Um, he always introduced his poems in the context of his journals. So he would tell you a lot about what was happening before you get the poem. And um, in this case, he's traveling up the coast of Japan on a pilgrimage alone. And um, he looks out, um, I forget which city he is, he looks out from the city that he's in, and he looks over to an island called Sado Island. And um, this island was the place where there was gold mining at the time, and uh, it was a bit of a mess. But it was also um, a place for artists to go and be protected if they weren't safe. And some of the most famous art of, artists of his time, like the person who invented uh, no drama, um, uh, was living there at the time. So in a way, when you look at Sado Island, as he described it, um, it's this island in the middle of the sea, a kind of melancholic place that had been sort of ravaged by mining, and also the place where um, um, some really important figures and uh, heroes for him were living. Um, we'll have this in Toronto soon. <laughs> when uh, they build the bridge to the island airport. <laughs> we'll look over at that once beautiful island where all the artists are being protected now by Porter Airlines. <laughs> Stormy Sea 
stretching out over Sado, Heaven's River. So, um, Heaven's River, uh, of course, is the Milky Way. So, Stormy Sea, so he looks out over the coastline and he sees Stormy Sea stretching out over Sado, Heaven's River. So at first there's this kind of melancholic sense of this stormy sea, um, but it's actually stretching out not around Sado, but over Sado. And, um, and then he looks closely at the sea and it's identical to the Milky Way. And one of the things we, we know about looking at the Milky Way, or maybe even when you look at the stars last night, is it's just, it's endless. I mean, in a way the ocean is endless also, but not as endless as the sky. And maybe you've had this experience in Ontario where um, you wake up at, uh, at this time that you've woken up today and you get out of your tent and you put your cold shoes on and you go down to the water and um, the water is perfectly still and all you see is the sky. And it seems like you're looking at the water but you're actually looking at the sky. And they're totally identical in that moment. So this is, in a way, what Dogen is saying about Uji. It's the identity or the identical nature of being in time. Time is being, and your being is happening in time. And yet there are so many ways that we're out of time out of sync. And so you could say that we're practicing because we're trying to get somewhere. And I think that um, this is dangerous intention, this kind of uh, striving. Um, Or you could say um, the sky is already there. As we said the first night, You already have Buddha nature. You already have that awakened intelligence. Um, But we forget. We forget because it's so close to us. Stormy sea stretching out over Sado, heaven's river. So this river that's reaching across the sky from horizon to horizon, filled with stars, is also um, Buddha. And Buddha is also the three-headed, eight-armed, wrathful deity, and is also a whisk or a staff. In the same way that um, today, for some of you, you wake up in the morning as a nun. And maybe you wake up alone. And we walk as a group, and you practice in community, and you're one version of yourself. And tonight you go home to a house full of kids. And... um, 
You have to be somebody different. And you have to be somebody different. You have to shift. You don't want to walk around your house in walking meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And this happens sometimes on retreat where people start to have this, they touch this part of themselves that is so deep and clear and still and creative. And then they go home and they try and keep that. And it, you know, gets demolished. <clears throat> Norman Feldman always gives, um, at the end of retreat, when he's talking about um, uh, PRS, post-retreat syndrome, <laughs> um, he always talks about a practice when you're coming home after a workshop or a retreat, um, walking really slowly to your door, and put your hand on your door and don't open it. And before you open the door, to think about what's happening on the other side of the door. And to try and get your mind and body and heart um, in line with what you imagine happening on the other side of the door. And not walking in with your retreat. Because from the retreat, you have the ability to attune um, more easily to what's happening on the other side of the door as opposed to coming in and just bringing your retreat. So having this ability to flow. If I sat like this and spoke like this when I was with my six-year-old, it would drive him crazy. So I have to be a different person. And how much suffering there is when we are um, trying to be the same person all the time. Have you ever tried this before? It's usually called being a teenager. <laughs> a teenager, you get an idea of like what the cool version of yourself is, and then you try and be that. And um, some of us might even have photographs of this. And it's <laughs> really interesting. You might even have mixed tapes. <laughs> so is the trick, Michael, to stay connected to to keep some link, the connection to the awareness-wise to the other, to the Buddha self, while being the whatever self. I think sometimes the first thing we have to remember is there's also the sky. Yeah. But then um, to just remember that, and I do this sometimes, the way I do it is, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, on the streetcar in Parkdale, you know, going mad. <laughs> and I'll just remember that while I'm here with all these people on the streetcar, um, there's a trout swimming upstream on the Petawawa River, the north end of Algonquin Park, and a tree standing beside the river. And that's happening simultaneously. And just to know that the fish is there and the tree is there, and that experience is happening simultaneously. Or when you're, um, you know, taking off on the island airport, and you look down from your little porter window that um, as you're flying, um, there is also um, water current and fish 
swimming around underneath you. And that both things are happening simultaneously. And this helps when break down the idea of thinking about like one part of yourself doing this and another part of yourself doing that and to really see that both things are happening simultaneously. And actually, if you wanted to take it further, and Dogen gets into this later, and we're not going to touch it this weekend, but a whole other way of thinking about time is not so much horizontally, but vertically, so that, you know, in this moment, you've done everything. You know, your whole past is contained and coded in this activity. And you'll do everything. And it's already done. And um, this is also another way of thinking about time. So in the moment that we see the stormy sea, we're also in Heaven's River. And uh, when you're looking at the gold mine on Sato Island, it's also a place where some of your heroes have protection. You go to the worst neighborhood in Toronto, and you know that in the heart of that neighborhood um, is also your future apartment. (laughs) I don't know where that is in Toronto anymore. Someone told me the next neighborhood is Mimico. The only place people can afford who don't have much rent. Um, so let's see what Dogen has to say. Know that in this way there are myriad forms and hundreds of grasses throughout the entire earth. And yet each grass and each form itself is the entire earth. The study of this is the beginning of practice. When you are at this place, there is just one grass, there is just one form. There is understanding of form, and no understanding of form. There is understanding of grass, and no understanding of grass. Since there is nothing but just this moment, the time being is all the time there is. Grass being, form being, are both time. Each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. So some of you who are uh, meditators and yoga practitioners, we have a kind of obsession with the breath. And the amazing thing about attention to the breath is that after decades of practice, you can come back to the breath again. And it's brand new. And that really every breath is brand new. I mean, no two breaths happen in exactly the same way. And then there's a sense that 
paying attention to the breath starts to tune you in to what's happening now. But as we start to get deeper and deeper into the breath, we also notice that the mind and the breath mirror each other. So that when the breath is, uh, has a lot of fluctuations or vrittis in it, so does the mind. It's like when your mind is racing and you try and use your thoughts to calm yourself. <laughs> um, but instead of using your mind to calm your mind, you can just go to the other end of the axis, which is the breath. And as the breath starts to calm down, so too does the mind. The breath and the mind are really one and the same. Um, and when you meditate um, and you give attention to the breath, what starts to happen is the breath becomes softer and softer and softer and softer and softer. And, softer and, softer. and as the breath becomes quieter and quieter and quieter, the mind also becomes quieter and quieter and quieter. Um, And then those of you that do pranayama practices, um, you also know that there's some fine-tuning you can do with the breath. And as you really start to tune into the quality of your breathing, um, you can start to notice what the nervous system is doing. You can start to notice what the emotional body is like. You can start to notice um, the thought process all through this matrix of the breath. And I usually like to think of the breath as um, a little bit like making candles. Have any of you ever made candles? Summer camp? Yeah. Um, You take a string and you dip it in the wax. And so if you think of the energy of the breath, or the prana, or the chi of the breath, it's like you take the breath and you dip it in the emotions, and you dip it in the mind, and you dip it in all your ancestry and you dip it in your present culture, and you dip it in all these sheaths or koshas, and then what's left is this breath with all of these layers in it. And so at first it just seems like breath, and the mind labels it breath, and you forget about it. Um, But as you start to tune into breathing, you start to notice that there's all these layers in it. And Dogen is saying the same thing about grass. If you look really closely at the breath, if you really look closely at grass, that's the whole world right there. In one inhale and one exhale, you have the whole birth and death cycle right there, viscerally. Not birth and death is a conceptual idea, but the actual experience of the beginning of an inhale, following it all the way through to an exhale. And just in that, you can find the deepest insight Because that's the nature of how things happen, right there. I mean, when you have an exhale and you finish your exhale, you never get it back again. You can't go back to that moment, it's over. In the same way that when the sun came up this morning, you can't go back to last night. You can't hold on. Maybe there was something that happened for you last night that was really... Um, beautiful and touching. Um, Maybe last night uh, you said something stupid. Maybe last night the meditation was really dreadful. Maybe last night the meditation practice was perfect. 
well, it's over. <laughs> I remember one time uh, on a silent retreat with Norman. Um, um, we were on retreat, and every once in a while during retreat, Norman keeps a little radio, and he likes to turn it on and just listen to the news. And we found out on the news... Um, Oh, I won't get into the whole story, but you know there was there was there was kind of a news piece that was semi-interesting. But when you're on retreat, it's really interesting. <laughs> and um, and we started talking about it, and then suddenly I realized Norman, we're supposed to be leading the. <laughs> I look at the watch, and you know we're ten minutes late. So you know we we r- rush over and sit down, and we're late. And um, of course we don't tell anyone why we're late. And and then afterwards, um, I said, oh, Norman, you know, I felt like such an idiot being in the cabin with you. And meanwhile, everybody's over in the room meditating. And, you know, we're talking about the news and then we're late. And I I said, so, you know, during the sitting, I really, it was, it took me a while to just settle. And 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 he just said, oh, why did it take you so long? (laughs) <laughs> just another mood coming and going um, embarrassment agitation coming and going don't hold on to it it's done now it's done now now of course there's something you can learn we all have to take responsibilities for our actions but a lot of them are over and you can't go back it's kind of like when you have a garage sale and you finally put everything out and then people start coming to buy things, and then you slowly start pulling things out. <laughs> you know, oh, that's not for sale. <laughs> There's a store in um, on Queen West called The Good Catch in Parkdale. Some of you might know it. And uh, the woman who runs the store has a, has a little kid. And uh, so around the store, the little kid has all these baskets of toys. Store sells a lot of used things, and uh, there's all these baskets of toys. So when the sun is in the store, none of the toys are for sale. <laughs> and when he's not in the store, the toys are for sale. <laughs> and so whenever we're walking by with my son, he always looks through the glass of the uh, front window to see if there's a kid in there. <laughs> if there's a kid in there, he's not interested in going. <laughs> So when you look into um, the grasses, um, the grass is singular and particular and unique in the same way that each one of you is singular and particular and unique, in the same way that a wave in the ocean, in a lake, is singular and particular and unique. Um, And yet that wave um, is water. And it comes out of and flows back into whatever your breath comes out of and flows back into. We don't know. I mean, your breath has nothing to do with you in some ways. You don't breathe. You don't make waves. You don't create the grass. And so even though there are hundreds and thousands of grasses, millions and billions of grasses, one particular grass is unique. It's 
You, maybe you have this experience when you're on a beach and you're looking at rocks and stones. Does anybody here like collecting things from the beach? Mm-hmm. In Toronto, you collect rebar and old bricks. <laughs> <laughs> and good, great colored pieces of glass. Mm-hmm. And um, I once told somebody, that, well, you know, what are the beaches like in Canada? I said, they're made of glass. <laughs> um, you know, one particular stone calls out to you. One particular piece of glass calls out to you. And likewise, you know, in your life, there are so many different kinds of work you can do. And yet, um, one particular, or um, if you're Pat, seven particular things call out to you. And, um, and that's not explainable. I always tell people who don't really know what to do with their life, um, we all have these phases, you know, just ask people around you, aside from your parents, (laughs) (laughs) or people you support, and and they'll tell you, they'll tell you when you can't see um, about your particularities and how you can serve. Um, how do you put these two things together that you spoke of, the idea that everything that we've ever done and been all exists in this moment, yeah. and you're saying it's over, it's gone. How, mm-hmm. how do you put those two together? Um, I mean, you know, one, one thing that comes to mind is um, what happens in therapy where um, a lot of people come to therapy and they already know the logic, which is that if you have something going on in your life, it's probably been set up in the past. And um, if your um, study of psychology happened in the 60s and 70s, it probably didn't just happen in the past, it probably happened in the first five years of your life. And so we tend to look at our symptoms as being products of childhood. If somebody has a depression in um, a tribal community that has not met Freud, um, they might contemplate that maybe the depression is related to the way they planted, um, the way they diverted a river, um, a ritual that wasn't completed properly. I mean, they don't necessarily have that whole myth of the family that so dominates the way we look at ourselves. I mean, that's that's a kind of root metaphor that we all share now. Whether you believe it or not, it's there. It's in the way we talk about ourselves. Um, And so when something's showing up, you can go like a kind of psychic archaeologist back into your past to try and explain what's happening now. And, you know, that's a really great way of seeing a pattern. But just because you can explain how something showed up doesn't get rid of it. Um, At the same time, when something's showing up, without actually going into the past. Um, When some things show up, the past recreates itself 
in that moment, especially in relationship. So when something is unconscious, the way that we can see it is usually only through the way we project it onto somebody else. And this is why relationship is so powerful. Because um, when something's outside of our awareness, we hand it over to somebody else and think it's theirs. Not usually in a very elegant way. (laughs) And their job is to hand it back to us. (laughs) And a therapist's job is to hand it back to you. That's all we do as therapists. We take people's symptoms and their projections and we just give it back to them. And, uh, And in giving it back, there's a great service. But what it also shows is that all that past is encoded in the present symptom. And that you don't actually need to look at the present symptom and go back into the past with it. Because if you really pay attention to it here, the whole past is there. Even though it's over. It's recreating itself here. Secondly, um, the best place to notice this is in the body. So in the body, and you all know this from your yoga practice, you start to uh, open up nadis or meridians where the energy flows has not flowed, or you open up areas, or you, you touch areas where there's too much flow, and you need to bring balance to it. And um, that's all past. And not just your personal past. You know, I mean, we all have to believe in past lives now because of DNA and the genetic code. Now, it doesn't mean that you were something in the past, necessarily, but when you're born, you're born with this ancestry. Can you trace your own particular life through it? You know, that depends. But um, are you born a clean slate? No. So in every moment, the past is there. Um, But as we were talking about yesterday, you have a choice in how you're going to relate to that past. You know, is it going to be the kind of unconscious comfort of just repeating past patterns? Or are you actually going to um, work with um, either the momentum of what's comfortable, even if it's uncomfortable, um, or... um, the possibility of, of uh, connection that can happen when you let go of old addictions and um, preconceptions. So when something's arising that feels old, be careful not to uh, spend too much energy tracing it back to explain to yourself its roots. There's a place for that. But in meditation practice, we're a little bit just, we're more interested in A, attentiveness to what is here. The past is going to show up through that. And B, to really see that um, appearance as impermanent. And part of a flow. Um, One of the great differences between this and how we think about Uh, psychology and psychoanalysis is that um, we tend to think that the unconscious is a thing that's like in the back 
like a cupboard or something, or a safe back somewhere. Um, and those of you who are studying the Yoga Sutra with me on Tuesday nights, we're, we're about to start to get into this in our, the way we've been looking at consciousness. But un, there is no the unconscious. There's unconsciousness. And unconsciousness is also a coming and going, just like the grass and just like waves in a sea. And like everything. And so, although there's patterns that seem to come up and go, those patterns exist in particular conditions. You can have a pattern of anger, for example, that um, one person might see as you being an angry person. But yet, that only might come up with that particular person in particular occasions and not show up anywhere in your life. So you have a responsibility to work with it in that particular condition. But if you go around saying, I'm an angry person, the person who, who introduced me to yoga was my uncle, uh, who lived in a mental institution, and he was schizophrenic. So according to everybody, he's schizophrenic. You know? And you know, he spent, from when he was 15 till when he died in his 50s, that whole time in mental institutions a long time in Hartford and then in uh, Toronto on Queen Street. And uh, he was my best friend. I used to hang out with him. Uh, after school, I would just take the... T- it was the place where I felt most normal. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes he was a crazy person. And sometimes he was not at all. You know? And I remember seeing that he was schizophrenic, and yet sometimes he wasn't schizophrenic. And I remember having this thought as a kid, you know, that schizophrenic isn't something you are. You know? Um, And nothing is something you are. And you're also not that either. So this is what Dogen is getting at here. That all the history of grass is in one blade of grass. And yet that blade of grass, as particular as it is, is connected to all blades of grass. Not just conceptually through our ideas about genetic code or something, um, but um, in our experience. We look out and we say grass, and you get a little closer, and there's one blade you're going to pick to make a whistle. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of get the, the past in the present. Mm-hmm. What I find more difficult to grasp, although I really like the idea, is that the future is in the present as well, right? Uh-huh. And in that particular moment, or in that particular grass, that's what he means when he says the entire world mm-hmm. that's infinite. Let's talk about the future and how that gets in there. Or, or yeah. is that too linear? Um, there's a great book about this called Yoga for a World Out of Balance. <laughs> and, uh, I highly recommend it. <laughs> Aside from the fact it's yellow and purple. <laughs> how can you... How can you turn down a book? It's yellow and purple. <laughs> When Miranda July came out with her book, you know, they came out in like pink and turquoise and I don't remember all the colors. Other people might know better than me, but 
I remember thinking, how can you not buy a couple copies? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't just want it in pink. Also, you know, and probably the quality of reading it would be different. Um, you can't do that on Kindle. Um, yeah. I don't know how that's related to what you were talking about, but... Um, Oh yeah, yoga for all that. So, seed. Um, you know, in Sanskrit we call it bija or a seed. And uh, so, in every moment of perception, you're planting a seed. The way you perceive something um, influences what is being perceived. Right? The physicists have been telling us forever that the the observer always affects what's observed. Um, but at some very subtle level, even when we're meditating, when certain feelings come up and they trigger reactive patterns, in that moment of perception, you're actually planting a seed for how you're going to perceive that same feeling, for example, in future moments. It's like cognitive psychology 101. Right? Actually, I, I taught a workshop once in Cape Cod and someone said, this is like cognitive psychology on steroids. <laughs> um, which I liked a lot but basically um, and this is the teaching of karma that in every moment um, you're being influenced by past actions but what's elastic about that is that in every moment you're also planting future seeds and so this is where ethics comes in um, which is that when you start to see that in the way you're looking at things and the way you're speaking and the way you're moving your body, you're planting seeds for future activity. You know? I mean, even if you just think of it as a physical level, at a physical level, everything you do all day long is a yoga posture. Everything. You know? So, you know, you can't just, like, sit around eating pizza on your couch all day and then um, do some backbends in the evening and think it's going to make a difference. Because um, everything is a yoga posture all day long, and the yoga postures are giving a kind of attentiveness to the body um, that allows us to be free in this experience. And uh, because there are seeds planted. And the same with meditation. I mean, I often think of meditation like learning how to play piano or learning another language which is you just, you put your body here and you plant seeds and um, you learn some skills. And it's really mundane, you know? And, uh, and it seems to work. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that, uh, so in meditation, we work to notice and observe mm -hmm. versus engaging with the content in the way that we do sort of normally. You know, so a memory or something arises, and or a feeling, as you say, and then you sit and you watch it, and you watch it come and go, versus what we would normally do, which is, oh, I remember, this reminds me of such and such, and oh, this says I'm such a terrible person, yeah, uh -huh. and so on, so on, so on. So, and that reinforces that yeah. sort of seed for the future, is what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's two parts to that. One is, even though it mm -hmm. sounds like passivity, um, keeping still when something's showing up is actually activity. Um, it's planting, it's actively planting a pattern. 
Um, the other thing is, yeah, at the beginning you don't focus too much on content, but there is a place for focusing on content. Um, so sometimes I tell people, you know, when something's coming up that's really strong, you know, maybe there's um, some, some sadness showing up, and, um, you know, the sadness, you know, you say, I'm sad. And you investigate that and further say, oh, you know, instead of identifying I'm sad, just notice, oh, there's sadness, it's appearing in the belly, you know. And then maybe an image comes, and it's an image of, you know, your first love, and you haven't talked to them in so long. And then you start visualizing yourself on Facebook, trying to find them. <laughs> and then, um, and then you wonder, oh, will that be weird? Will they think, you know, I'm creepy or something? And then, so you don't, you know, maybe you're not going to do Facebook. So instead you'll just Google them and uh, see what shows up. And then, oh, that would be weird. Then I'd like be thinking about them. And then do I tell my present lover that I'm actually thinking a lot about my old lover and what will they do? Maybe they'll leave. And then if they left, you know, I wouldn't know how to... Uh, support myself and I'd have to move back to Toronto and then um, I'd be back in the city again and so it's not worth it so I'm not going to look them up but oh I remember you know her hair and the way she <laughs> diet and how I used to cut her hair and the way the dog would come and roll in the hair afterwards and what a mess it was and we had such great floors in that house <laughs> hardwood and now you can't even get hardwood anymore. You have to <laughs> and the next thing you know, the bell rings. <laughs> End of the... And although you've written a great novel, <laughs> um, to add to the ones you are always writing, um, you've, just, you've missed something because of all this identification. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just to be able to watch something show up and burn itself out, or when it's time to really investigate something, oh, there's sadness, what's this about? Mm -hmm. And instead of all the spinning tangents you could take, um, try and stay with it in, in a body way. Oh, it's in the belly. Oh, now it's changing, it's in the lower back. Oh, there's an image now of... Um, mother, you know, and then, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't so kind to my mother when I talked to her this week, you know, I was a little bit short with her, and, oh, there's some sadness around there, and, you know, and then when you kind of investigate in this way, um, the feeling comes up, it sometimes becomes more acute, and then it's gone, and sometimes when we fully feel something, it doesn't really come back too much. <laughs> You know, and it's the times where we don't actually feel the thing that um, we're off in some other ideas about it that it just keeps coming back, and it's almost like there's this natural law, and the mourning process is a little bit like this, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like you have to feel something to a certain degree before it lets go of you. And if you don't, it comes over and over. And every time you start feeling it and then you go to the bar, you know that, like, in a couple weeks, it's coming back. And there are certain kinds of pain and there are certain kinds of loneliness and there are certain kinds of anxiety that we just 
don't want to sit through. And when we don't, they just keep coming over. And when I say sit, I don't necessarily mean sitting still. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of ways you can sit with something. Sometimes when there's a lot of anger, you can't sit. Mm -hmm. And so you do walking meditation. Or sun salutations. Or dancing. There's a a catch, though, if you you are... Uh, intention, your hidden intention, is to sit because you want the process to speed up, <laughs> or you want to get through mm-hmm. it faster. This yeah. is the way to get, let it burn out faster. Yeah. Um, if you try too hard, or if that hidden intention is there, which yeah. um, I find it's there, and I catch myself in it, um, yeah. it's a trap. Yeah. The second noble truth uh, is that, um, I like to call them ennobling truths, is that the, um, not only is there suffering, but the cause of our suffering is want, craving. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I said yesterday in the meditation instruction, when you're sitting to notice um, your attitude about something, This is so crucial. And what you're actually noticing is craving, is wanting. So like, for example, maybe this has happened to you where you've gone to meditate because you want to be peaceful. Mm -hmm. And of course, like the day you're trying to be peaceful is the day that the three-headed, eight-armed, wrathful deity shows up. And so (laughs) it's important while you're meditating to really notice your intention and your attitude and where there's wanting, even if the wanting is to speed something up. Um, And when you check every once in a while just wanting, um, it it sort of takes the energy out of it. Um, As a novice in this, uh, I find that uh, sometimes the the idea of going back to the breath when your mind is going um, to other places, you're telling stories, is that sometimes it, that, that, that time frame is so fast that you're actually feeling the breath, but then you've got these thoughts, and then you're going back to the breath, but you can't quite, you know, um, they're both there at the same time. Yeah. So what, do you, what technique would you use to actually, or do you just keep telling yourself, go back to the breath, go back to the breath? Um, it depends. It depends. Sometimes something's showing... Like, if, if we were on a retreat or something, and the same thing is showing up over and over and over, then um, when we had time to talk in person, I would ask you about what's showing up over and over and over. Because sometimes yeah. there's something there that's yeah. really worth giving attention to. And um, some <laughs> meditation systems, and some of you here are familiar with them, will say, just come back to the breath, over and over and over. And I don't, I don't actually agree with that. Um, I think there um, are times where there's content showing up that really needs attention. And uh, coming back to the breath often can create some repression and denial and all kinds of things. Um, And a good teacher who has some understanding of psychology, which is very easy to find these days, can pick that up really fast. Actually, there's a a corollary to that, which is, is the object, I know you're not supposed to have an, mm-hmm. an object or an intention, yeah. but sometimes I find maybe the intention is not to have content, 
But you can't really do that, right? Uh, you can't do that. Okay. There, you can. That, that does happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are times where the mind is totally free of content, um, but it's temporary. Okay. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there are other techniques. Like, for example, if someone's having a really hard time coming back to the breath because of thinking, we introduce other techniques. Many of you know them. Like, for example, sound, uh, giving attention to sound, and um, just letting the ears open to the sound in the room. Um, when we practice in Parkdale, we, we don't really practice focusing on the breath. We practice focusing on sound, because there's so much of it. And, um, and we just open to sound, and that's actually the primary object in our meditation, is uh, streetcars and ambulances, and people yelling really interesting things. <laughs> Can we just keep going a tiny bit more with Dogen? Mm -hmm. And then we'll have some breakfast. <clears throat> so I'll just, uh, just again, the last sentence. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. Any being or any world. Is anything left out of the present moment? Sometimes I, I, can, I, I would like to reinterpret that, saying, you know, do you have everything you need? Yeah. I mean, what do you need? And that helps us clarify our needs and clarify where there's imbalance. I mean, do you have everything you need to practice? I taught a workshop last year uh, in a city in Wisconsin where there's so much unemployment and this was right after being in Manhattan where it feels like everything's fine and then to actually go to places in the US where the unemployment rate is really high and uh, to be in a room with people where you know we, 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 we kept the cost really low of the workshop so you know everyone in the workshop had somebody in their family who had lost a job in the last year. And uh, when you lose a job, um, sometimes we're paralyzed by a kind of depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. But also, it's a time where you also get to clarify what's really important. Mm -hmm. What's really important. And um, John Cage has a line I, I've always been inspired by where he says, wouldn't it be great if unemployment rates were so high that people had to start doing what they were supposed to do? <laughs> Yet an ordinary person, Dogen says, who does not understand Buddha Dharma may hear the words, the time being this way. So in a way, <laughs> he's about to tell you He's about to embarrass you. Yes. <laughs> For a while I was three heads and eight arms. For a while I was eight or sixteen foot body. This is like having crossed over rivers and climbed mountains. Even though the mountains and rivers still exist, I have already passed them, 
and now reside in the jeweled palace and the vermilion tower. Those mountains and river are as distant from me as heaven is from earth. Has anybody done this before? I, I do this when I go hiking, and you pass by all these great places, and it's hard to, where do you stop? Where is the place you stop? Like, when do you find the best place? <laughs> and actually, really, the meditator can just stop. And you'll find something there. Yesterday, Annie and I went for a walk through some caves. And all this moss, has anybody been, been there? It's just right behind the house. And um, it's hard to know where, like, you could stop anywhere. Or do you keep going? Or, you know, how do you know? Where to stop? Where to look? And actually, you could stop anywhere, and the whole world is right there. It's not that simple. Finally, he says this. <laughs> because he's really been pushing, and it's not so simple. Um, at the time the mountains were climbed and the rivers crossed, you were present. Time is not separate from you, and as you are present, time does not go away. As time is not marked by coming and going, the moment you climb the mountains is the time being right now. If time keeps coming and going, you are the time being right now. This is the meaning of time being. Does this time being not swallow up the moment when you climbed the mountains and the moment when you resided in the jeweled palace? and the Vermilion Tower, does it not spit them out? And of course, some of you who've been studying yoga with me, especially the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, you know the famous line that Mulabandha eats time. The end of your exhale eats time. Time swallows things up. So you could say, um, I climbed the mountain, and that was time being. And Dogen's saying, no, it's not so simple. Because in the moment you climbed the mountain, there was climbing mountain. And we've also had the experience where you climb a mountain and you're somewhere else. And you're not actually climbing the mountain. Has anybody done this before? I think I've had whole meditation retreats like this, where I never really was on the retreat. I was just like working out things, lists and other things. Um, and the same thing is true with death. From here, you feel like you're going to die. And that's a big deal. And we project death as happening to a self in the future. And yet, at the same time, in the moments when we're dying, there's just moments. You know, I mean, you hear so much when people are with friends or partners who are dying, and they're expecting this um, profound conversation or like last word. Um, and often it doesn't happen. The last word is often like, I'm just going to go get a coffee down the hall. 
And and you also might know that a lot of people, they like to die alone. So, you, you know, everybody's sitting beside the bed waiting, you know. And then finally they go to get a sandwich from the vending machine. And um, they come back and the person's gone. Yeah. And um, so when death happens for you, that's just... Um, those moments happening. In, in Dogen has a saying where he, you know, he says, there is no death. And he's not saying you don't die. He's saying that in the moments of death, those are also just moments, like these moments. And um, can you be there for those moments? And that's why we practice Shavasana. We practice dying every day so that we can get back up again. And then you get back up, and wow, you get another chance. Mm-hmm. But Tabby Joy says, student coming up like flat board, meaning you're dead, um, it's okay. <laughs> like, what a good way to go. You just finished your practice, and you lie down, and you never get up again. It's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. But then you do get up, and there's a kind of gratefulness. Don't treat that pose. In most yoga classes, they kind of they say time for final relaxation, and what you should hear is final relaxation. <laughs> and then you get another chance. So Dogen's saying, don't make it so simple where you say that death is coming. You know, or that you once crossed mountains and rivers. When you cross mountains and rivers, that was time being. That time being's over. Now there's this time being. And yet mountains and rivers are still being time in the way they do. And when you're dying, in the moment of death, um, that's also just another moment. And it also becomes like DNA, hmm. because it's how you're impacted by the experience yeah. lives in you and may um, impact you and transform you. Yeah. I mean, maybe for some of you, and, and you know, I know some of your stories, and also you, you know people like this, where we've had things happen to us that have such made such indelible marks. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, you know. And um, that lives in us. It lives in us. But it's not us, you know. The patterns that are caused by old wounds show up in conditions, and in other conditions, they're gone. They're not there. You know? So again, that yes, the past makes these prints, but... The prints are not solid, fixed, static things. Um, they're just moments of uh, dependent arising. So similar to a physical scar. In what way? Which is part of the, the skin. Mm-hmm. But it's not the skin. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes the scar really gets in the way. And sometimes it doesn't. Last night I put up this picture. Allen Ginsberg, before he died, self-portrait. 
and uh, I think it was like 15 years earlier, Allen Ginsberg, right after uh, he was in the hospital, you can see his scar there, along his abdomen. I like the way he's holding the camera, and his hands are so gentle in this picture. Do you, do you know that feeling after you've had uh, some kind of surgery or an illness where your hands are, like just to pick something up is such a big deal? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a scar, um, and yet sometimes we forget about the scar. Even people who have chronic pain have times when they forget about it. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. So today when you're eating... Um, breakfast, just see how um, there are moments where you have a taste of something and um, the flavor moves through the mouth, there's digestion, swallowing, etc. And then that bite is over. And I don't know about you, but when when I ate the apple crisp last night, I wanted that moment to repeat again in exactly the same way. After I, so I would try and get the exact same amount of yogurt and like all the right proportions again and because it didn't work I went and got another piece I thought maybe it was the temperature and um, yeah. um, and at the same time The singularity of your experience um, is only one piece when you open your eyes and you look down the long table and we're all eating. We're all eating. And because we're all eating, it's one body eating. It's one body eating, one body digesting, one body defecating. You know, when you go into the little outhouse, look down into the toilet you know you can't find your bowel movement in there maybe some of you can but you know that's one body that's one body and then you can expand this generally that when you're sitting and maybe you're having a hard time maybe in parts of the workshop this weekend um other people are also. Your mind and their mind is probably not as different as you might think. That's also one body. And we help each other. I mean, just to watch some of you in the kitchen, you know, and then you see that there's a job to do and another person moves over and switches around. That's all one body. And just like in your body, if you get a cut on your left arm, your right arm comes over and takes care of it. And when we're attuned to the group and we've forgotten a little bit about ourselves in a healthy way, then we can make this workshop happen. Everybody here has contributed an ingredient to this workshop so it can happen in this way and it's never going to happen in another way. 
And it might never happen again. And you might never happen again in this way. You probably won't. You won't have this experience of this morning ever again. It'll be different. And when you're stuck, um, when, uh, when you worry about not accomplishing something, just to know someone else will accomplish it. If you're a person who does too much and you really think like, especially those of you who are activists or therapists or, you know, just, you know, if I don't help in this one situation, well, just to know someone else is going to take care of it. There are other humans. You know, when Sarah has writing block, to remember, like, other people are going to write novels. Sometimes I think, because I live here, my parents live in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I always come to this thought that who's going to take care of them when they need somebody to take care Mm -hmm. of them. And it's very comforting to think that there will be somebody to take care of them if I'm not there, as Mm -hmm. I will take care of some people here Mm -hmm. if they need to. Mm -hmm. How many people have this experience who, you know, want to have kids and then decide not to have kids and then um, are parents in other ways? And how helpful it is when you um, recognize that this is part of your path and you stop um, focusing so much on the wanting. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the desire to to have children, and for some people it's not their path. But the problem is the wanting. The wanting. So you can have desire present, but the wanting is the problem. This is where the trouble starts. Yeah. And so finding ways to serve, finding ways to express yourself um, with attention to where the wanting is present because that's where time shows up and impatience shows up. That distinction between wanting and clear intention yeah. is a thin edge. That's another workshop. But yes, it's yeah. a thin edge. Yeah. Desire is extremely healthy. Yeah. But contraction around our desire is um, the cause of suffering. Mm-hmm.